Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Um, I'll tell you this. I've probably shared this before, but uh, my name's Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here. Um, I love it. And I actually, I was married here at this church uh, in 2014. I had just, you know, well, I was almost graduated from college. I was graduating in May, got married in March. I had just started working at the church in January. And so there was just lots of new things happening. And in March, uh, my wife and I uh, got married here at the church, and, you know, we did the typical thing. We're up on stage in the worship center, you know, groomsmen, bridesmaids, you know, audience, the witnesses came together to watch us exchange vows and rings and all those things, and we took the traditional vows uh, that, that you'll, you've probably heard before. I, Elijah, take you, Macy, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. You've probably heard those vows before. Now, there's two reasons we took those vows. One is because I was not brave enough to write my own. I, that would just, just been a mess and probably awkward for everybody sitting there having to listen to my mess. So I didn't do that. The other part, though, the reason we took the traditional vows was because um, I knew well, really, my dad encouraged me to because um, my dad took the traditional vows, and he actually told me this, and I was like, that is a great idea. But what he said was, every single time he would go to a wedding and somebody used those vows, he would remember what it was he committed to, what it was he signed up for, what it was he said, I'm going to live my life in this way to this woman for the rest of my eternity, or at least until I die, I guess I should say, right, till death do us part. But do you notice how these vows are shaped? They try to take all of the conditions out of the vows. Like Macy is going to be my wife from now on, no matter what, as, as far as we can consistently live with this. Like regardless of whether we are rich or poor, healthy or not, I'm going to love her. I'm going to sacrifice my interest for her and she's going to do the same for me. And this relationship there's going to be very, very little that will ever separate this relationship. Very few instances, very few conditions are going to destroy it. In the institution of marriage, in the union of lives, it's the closest thing we have to a covenant. It's the closest thing we have to a covenant. And we have to understand covenant to understand the Bible. We have to understand what a covenant is if we're actually going to see the narrative, the trajectory of all of Scripture. And this is and really what Deuteronomy is in so many ways. It shows us this renewing of vows. Like that's what this book is for. That's how it's laid out. The covenant's already been made with Moses on the mountain in Exodus 20. But now we're in Deuteronomy and years and years and years have passed and the nation of Israel has gathered together to renew their vows once more to the God who saved them. And what we see in this book is something really compelling because it shows us the history of God and his people, how God has defeated their enemies and rescued his friends. It shows us morality. It delineates good from evil and how those things begin to embed themselves into our everyday life. It shows a civic virtue. Like how do people live in a world that hates God? How do people live in a world set apart as holy and chosen as people who have been given civic virtue and, and judicious, 
you know, laws and, and systems that allow themselves to really embody the goodness of God. This is all the things that Deuteronomy shows us. And it shows us how we live in a world, how we live in a society that ultimately sin would get into. What would happen when sin got into our community? And it shows us what God would do when it would. This is what Deuteronomy book does. And this book, I'm telling you, this book is going to bring you new joy. This book is going to, to be something helpful for you. It's not just an Old Testament book that is archaic and dusty. It has meaning. It is God's word. It will be like a sword, like Hebrews talks about, penetrating deeply like a sword. It will cut you as a weapon. It will expose every single part of you, but as like, like a surgeon's tool, it will begin to heal. This is what the Word of God does. And so before we jump into the book, I just want to pray for us, and then we can start to really unpack the background of it and what this class will be. So let's pray. Father God, you are good and holy and true. And Father, we know that today um, your Word will speak. And so Father, we just pray that we have hearts that will receive it ears that are open, eyes that see clearly. Father, I know, God, that there's not much, God, that I could do uh, to articulate ways that have power unless your Holy Spirit is ultimately doing something. And so, Father, I pray that I am simply an instrument into enjoying you more because there is no book of the Bible that is wasted, no word, no punctuation, God, that will ultimately be arbitrary in communicating your truth and therefore enjoying your presence. And we pray, Father, that this book would be one more opportunity to sit at your feet. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, in terms of how this class will work, I'm actually teaching this class on Wednesday nights as well. So it's going to be, it's the exact same class, obviously a little bit of difference because in, on Wednesday nights, I'm teaching it in the worship center. And in, in the worship center, I don't get to have as much interaction. So for you guys, if you have questions, it's great because you can just raise your hand or blurt it out or whatever, and I would love to, to try to tackle those as we go. I don't get to do that in the worship center because the way we're streaming it, and so we have to do it on stage, and it's like me up here and them down there, and then they're all spread out. You know, it's like 70 people in a room with a thousand chairs, so it's a little bit different. Uh, but in this room, we can start to really dig into the meat if you guys have questions, so it's great. I'm going to try to start this class each Sunday morning at probably like 9.20, 9.25. That way you have time to drop kids off and um, get coffee or whatever it is you want to you do and just get situated um, before we come in here. And then in addition to that, I'm going to try to provide handouts and everything that you need. I'm not going to require any homework, okay? Uh, you guys, I just want you guys to come. Our lives are busy enough as it is. You guys just come, soak up uh, the fellowship together, soak up just the word together uh, as we read and study it. Um, and the reality is, I mean, if you want to read through Deuteronomy, that's great. Um, I, I have actually, I provided a, a, um, an outline of how the class will work. Forgot to grab it out of here. Uh, of how the class will work. It's in your binders, and it's going to be that, that class out, or the class structure there. So this is how we're going to break this up. It's going to be an 11-week class, and I've broken it up into this 11-week uh, uh, hopefully organization. We'll find out. But uh, that's basically how we're going to look at the book. 
And so um, just come in and, and just enjoy the, our time together, really. Um, so I, I do want to talk through a little bit of these handouts. So again, we have the class structure. This is how we're going to tackle each week. So if you want to read those chapters and stuff before you come, that's great. Uh, this Deuteronomy Lesson 1 handout, um, this is just going to be some of the notes you can record if you want. I also tell people to take notes in your Bible as much as possible because that's what I love to do. Um, so Deuteronomy background, that has a, just a bunch of space because that's just where I want you to put whatever comes into your head that you're like, that sounds interesting. I want to remember that. And then you can write that down, whether it's from reading it or me saying something that I don't even realize I'm saying. So uh, and then a covenant um, that's going to I'll give you those blanks and stuff. And then um, I'll have parts where I have you consult these other things. You'll have a covenant outline and some maps and we'll get there when you go. I always provide maps because I don't know why, but I just love them. I don't know why. I love maps. I love globes. I just like to look at them. I don't really know why that is, but I just do. So anyways, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and just jump right in. So Deuteronomy, why in the heck are we studying this book? Um, Well, obviously it is part of the counsel of God. It's the word of God. We believe there's power in every single part of the word of God, even Deuteronomy. And I don't know how many people I've run into and I've talked to and they're like, Deuteronomy, why I think I'll, I think I'll try another class, you know, just because it's a book that is boring. And that is my hope is not only that, um, I can help you understand the Word of God better, but I can hopefully do so in a way that is a little more invigorating than when it feels like you're sitting down and reading it and you're not always aware of the historical details. I'm gonna do all that work for you. And then hopefully as it starts to come into, like, as you start to soak it all in, when you read the Bible, it'll just start to hopefully connect in, in places. Part of the reason we're studying this book, though, is because it matches with where we're going in our sermon series. So we're starting a new sermon series today called Liberated, and it's taking some of the ideas and themes within, the, within Exodus and then tracing them throughout the Bible. And so for these first three weeks, even, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. Um, Mark will preach through that, and then we'll kind of move on from there into other aspects, into other parts of the Bible that echo some of those Exodus themes. So that's part of why we're doing Deuteronomy is because obviously it has a lot of those echoes in it in in and of itself. The other thing, though, that I think people don't really realize is that Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Bible. Like it really is. It's one of the most quoted books in the entire New Testament. We have 27 books in our New Testament, 27. It is quoted in 21 of them. That is a lot. So we need to know what this book says to understand why the heck all of the New Testament authors were quoting it so much. Also, it seems like it was Jesus's favorite book. And if it's Jesus's favorite book, it can be ours too, okay? He has quoted this book more than any other book. When we see the narratives about Jesus, he quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. When he goes into the wilderness and he's fighting Satan, what does he quote? Deuteronomy. This is the book he quotes. It's an important book. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in, our, in your Bible, and it's what people believe conclude what we see as the Torah, which is the law. Torah means law in Hebrew, and that's the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's also known as the Pentateuch. But when you read about the law, it's typically referring to these books. Sometimes it's referring to very specific parts of them, but most of the time it's referring to them as a unit, the Torah, the law. Especially in the New Testament, that's true. And this book concludes basically the the law before it goes into a trajectory of history. It goes into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the kings and chronicles and all those different things. Now, 
Deuteronomy, the name literally means second law, second law. But in my research, I have found that they don't actually think that this is the best name for it. Um, so there was this book that, so we have our English Bibles, right? Our English Bibles were translated from Hebrew and Greek manuscripts into English, okay? And some Aramaic thrown in there along the way at different points. But the point is, the, the Hebrew uh, people, the nation of Israel, had a, um, a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. As, as the world started to become Hellenized under Alexander the Great and onward, the whole world became this Greek empire, and so it started to learn Greek. And so the, the, the his, uh, nation of Israel had the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. That's where the name Deuteronomy comes from, is when that was translated into the Septuagint. But a lot of people actually believe in my research that the original name for this book was Eleh Hadabarim, which is Hebrew for these are the words. These are the words. And you'll notice when you look at chapter 1, verse 1, that that's exactly how this book starts. Now, just a little interesting fact. Um, really has nothing to do with the purpose of anything we're talking about, other than I thought it was interesting and I wanted to share it with you. So, <laughs> why is Deuteronomy important? Here's the deal. Here is where I want to blow your mind, okay? I want to show you the best parts of what Deuteronomy does, but it's going to be a process, okay? You're going to have to come with me. I'm going to light the fuse, but the fuse is going to have to follow its path before it gets to the explosion. And so I need you to come with me. So here's the deal. How many of you have heard of foreshadow? Raise your hand if you've heard of that concept. It's a pretty common concept. It's used all over the place in literature, in cinema. Any good story has foreshadowing. Um, and so I always use Harry Potter as pretty much any example ever that I ever, if you ever take a, a lesson with me, you know that I'm going to talk about Harry Potter and I'm going to talk about Tim Keller because I love both of those things. So Harry Potter does this. And if you haven't read the movies or the books, I am going to spoil a small part of it, but you know, it's been years. So get on the train. Okay. <laughs> so they're in the book of Harry Potter. There's, there are these things called horcruxes. And they actually become this really amazing part of the story later on in the book um, as you begin to see how J.K. Rowling has connected this entire, like, meaningful, important part of the story throughout not just, like, the end, but, like, throughout the whole book. And it comes to fruition that all of these things, the only way to destroy the Dark Lord, uh, this Dark Wizard, is by destroying all of the Horcruxes. And so what you find out is that throughout all of these books, Harry had been doing it the whole time without even realizing it. And then finally, finally, at the end of the story, Harry realizes that he himself is a horcrux. He himself must die. He must sacrifice his own life in order to finally stop the dark wizard. I'm spoiling the whole thing for you. But this is what happens. And this is why I love Harry Potter so much. Because it is an echo of Christianity. That's what J.K. Rowling was embedding into the story. Harry Potter is a Christ figure that when we get to the end, we see a man dying for his friends and enemies that they may all come to see that this is a dark wizard who must be destroyed in order that life may truly begin to flourish again. I mean, it is an amazing story. So all that to say, foreshadowing means something, doesn't it? And it's all over Scripture. It's all over Scripture. These little hints that bloom into these amazing realities. 
But the better thing about the Bible, obviously, is that the things actually happened. Like they weren't just the thoughts in the mind of an author who wrote them on a page. They were the thoughts of a God who enacted them in human history. And that is a stunning thing. And so I'm going to show you two of them to prove my point, And hopefully then we can start to see them in Deuteronomy. So the first thing is turn to Luke 3 in your Bibles. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 3. Now in Luke 3... Near the end, starting at about verse 23, um, Luke is going to start to give us a really compelling genealogy, if those words can be used in the same sentence, okay? So, this is a genealogy, and here's the deal. This genealogy is intentional, all right? There's another genealogy of Jesus listed in Matthew 1, but it has some differences to Matthew's. First off, Matthew starts with David, and then Abraham, and then it goes from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, okay? Luke does something different. He starts with Joseph, or so thought, as he cheekily says there, uh, Joseph all the way to the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, why does Luke go to Adam? Here's why. If you remember when we talked about portraits of Jesus in the summer, Luke is trying to paint us a portrait of Jesus as human. And here's why. That he cares for humanity, that he himself is human, because he is the new Adam. This isn't just a man born from a woman in the same corrupted sin state as the rest of us. This was a man born through the power of the Holy Spirit. Born not from the seed of any man and not from the genetic material of any woman, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a new humanity. This is a new Adam. And because of that, he's going to start the trajectory of a new humanity. You see, we are all part of Adam, the old Adam, until we have faith in Christ and we become part of the new. And here is why Luke, you can really see this, because what's the first thing Luke does right after he calls Jesus the son of Adam, the son of God? He brings him out into the wilderness And what is Jesus tempted by? Food. You see, the same temptations that Satan tried to use on Adam and Eve in the garden, but this time they would not work on this king. This is a new Adam. This is new humanity. And he would overcome every single temptation. And he would move through the wilderness, denying Satan his power, his influence, his authority. And he would establish a new humanity that would invite us in. That's what Luke is trying to do. And we're going to see that throughout the whole gospel. Now, there's another one you can see in Matthew, if you, if you look at Matthew 2. Um, now, Matthew is a Jewish writer. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he embeds so many things uh, of foreshadows that find their fruition in Christ that I could literally spend the whole class going through them. Uh, there's so many, but I'm going to name just one. And that is that Jesus is the new Moses. Not only is Jesus the new humanity, but Jesus is the new and better Moses. Now you can see that in Matthew 2 because Herod wants to do what? Kill all the young boys. Now who did that happen to? Moses, right? But what happened? Moses is saved. How is he saved? He's put into a river and he goes to live with a mother who is not his own. Does it sound familiar? Jesus goes to Egypt is saved there, and he is raised by a mom who is not his own. And then what happens? He grows old, he goes into the wilderness, and how long is he there? Forty days and forty nights. How long was how long were the Israelites in the wilderness as they traveled through 
40 years. And then what happens is uh, Moses has a speech, Deuteronomy. And what happens in Matthew 5, right after the wilderness? Jesus has a speech, the Sermon on the Mount. And he is redefining what the Ten Commandments are. What Moses gave, Jesus now makes better. There are foreshadows throughout all of Scripture. But you will only begin to find them when you sit and spend time in a book like this. Because it all makes a difference. Deuteronomy is the foreshadow. It's what gives us the anticipation of why we need Jesus. Like, why did he have to come? What was he here to do? Why do we need saving from sin? This is what Deuteronomy gives us the background for. It's the document that catalogs the reasons we need a Savior. This is what it's going to do. And it does so through the form of a covenant. Through the form of a covenant. Okay, so let's look deeper at what a covenant is. What is a covenant? This is my definition. So if it's, if it's got some holes, I'm really sorry. But I think it, it sums it up well. A covenant is the bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood, and relationship is secured. A covenant is the bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood, and relationship is secured. I'll say it one more time, just because I know people are writing it. A covenant is the bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood, and relationship is secured. Okay, so who makes the bond, right? Who is the bond between? Well, sometimes this bond can be between equal parties, like a husband and wife, or like David and Jonathan. They make a covenant as friends. Uh, Sometimes it can be equal parties. Most of the time, though, it's between a stronger party and a weaker party, or a lord and a servant, or a suzerain and a vassal. That is what uh, usually these these, um, relationships, these bonds are made up of. And why this would happen is because nations would go into battle and a stronger one could come in and help the weaker and then they would make a covenant securing all of these things, promises to each other, conditions that they would need to uphold to sustain the relationship and ultimately, hopefully, securing the relationship by the depth of the commitment. And so the stronger would ultimately determine how that relationship actually like, outworked, you know, what it actually began to look like. And this is what we see in the nation of Israel. Who is the covenant between? God and Israel. God is the stronger, the Lord, the suzerain. Israel is the weaker, the servant, the vassal. But here's a question. Why would you make a covenant after the battle is over? Like, why wouldn't you go to a nation and be like, hey, I'll make a covenant with you if... You help me in this battle, overcome my enemies, and ultimately lead us to victory. Like, why would, the, why would you do it after the battle's over? It doesn't make any sense. It's because this isn't about establishing a relationship. It's about guarding the relationship. It's not, a covenant doesn't make a relationship. It secures the relationship. It's a bond. Promises are made. Conditions are understood. And the relationship is secured. Do you know what that means? Here's what the stronger is saying to the weaker. It's saying, any time an enemy comes in and tries to fight you, I will be on your side. The greater will invade and help the weaker. And you know what that means for Israel? It means that God would fight their battles. That God would be on their side. Here's the deal. Covenants were made all the time. Like, they were all over the place. But this is the only one in history 
that had a political and, and warlike covenant that actually relied on God to come in and fight the battles. And it's radical. Like Israel said, for now on, if we are threatened by neighboring enemies, it won't be powerful men we call on. It will be a powerful God. And he will come in and he will fight our battles. And that is part of why it is so amazing to be a part of a covenant like that. And it's part of why it's so amazing for us to be a part of a covenant with God. He fights for you. He fights for you. Your battles are not your own. He's on your side. He's working to to protect you, to safeguard you. So long as your faith in Christ continues to, to allow you to enjoy that covenant promise, man, you will never have a fight that you are doing on your own. Like they've all become his. They have all become his. And so for those of us who are sitting in this room like anxious or stressed or worried or in fear, Man, come back to faith and trust in the God who will never leave you to fight those battles on your own. Never. Absolutely never. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to look at these promises that were made to Israel, the conditions that must be fulfilled, and how that relationship is secured. So, what I want you to do is check out this covenant handout. Um, It is the covenant outline. So here is why we're talking so much about a covenant is because most people believe that Deuteronomy is literally the document. Like, it's like the contract. And covenants are like contracts. It's almost like the covenant is the contract. It's outlined like a covenant. And so I'm going to show you how, as we um, not only study through the book, but also I'm going to go through each part and show you. So here we first start with the preamble. Okay, The preamble usually tells us who the covenant is between. It tells us the parties who are involved. It'll show us that, right, these are the words which Moses addressed. Like, it's saying Moses because Moses is the spokesperson for God. Moses is delivering the words from God to the people of Israel, and there are our parties within that context. Then we have the historical prologue. The historical prologue shows us the history of the parties and what brought them to this moment where a covenant would be desired. Okay, this historical prologue tells us the history of what preceded the covenant and what, why it would be desired, why they're talking about it right now. The general, general stipulations, these are the big ideas that guide the covenant. Okay, so this is where we get the Ten Commandments. And honestly, where we see that the big idea that drives all of it, which is love. Love is the big idea that drives all of these things. God's steadfast love, his everlasting love, and it's coupled with the Ten Commandments. Love God and you will always enjoy his never-ending love for you. Then we have the specific stipulations. And here is how we behave in the covenant within the current context. So here is where we will see the civil, the judicial, and the ceremonial laws. Okay, civil, judicial, ceremonial laws and the specific stipulations. Then you see blessings and curses. These are the conditions, right? So if you follow the laws, if you do everything that you need to do within the relationship that you've promised to do, then you're going to receive a blessing. If you start to disobey, rebel, and basically break your promises, then there are going to be curses that you will have to to deal with. And then we see the witnesses. The witnesses are those who see this covenant take place 
and testify to all that it says. They testify to the parties involved, who made the agreements, and if action needs to be taken, these are the witnesses that will say, yeah, we saw that, and we saw that they, they disobeyed or that they fulfilled their end of it. Okay? And here's what Deuteronomy says. It says in, these, in chapter 30 and in all these different verses that creation itself is a witness to this covenant. Creation itself is watching what God is doing with his people. Okay? The other thing that it is, um, that says it is a witness is a song at the end of Deuteronomy that Moses teaches the people of Israel. And it's a song that they'll remember, right? Songs are just amazing memory devices. They embed so much in cadence and melody and rhythm, and they can be passed on for generations. And that's the song that Moses teaches Israel. It would be a witness to this covenant. And lastly is this document, the book of Deuteronomy. This this book itself would be a witness to uh, everything that has been said. Now, it's important to note that not all covenants have this specific form, okay? Not all covenants include a preamble, a, pro, a historical prologue, stipulations, blessings and curses and witnesses, okay? Most covenants had those like very similar types of things involved, but not all of them included these very specific things. Like covenants are not originated in the Bible, like they're used all over the ancient world. We have documents spanning thousands of years that show us different covenants that were made between different nations and how those things uh, were utilized. And so what God's doing here is he's not creating a new idea. He's using an idea that was already familiar with the people uh, that would have been entering into it so that they could understand how, how their role and relationship would function. So they didn't originate in the Bible. God just uses them to basically motivate and um, become a catalyst for his redemption, essentially. Now, again, these are like contracts, but they carry way more weight. There's no, like, loopholes. You can't just, like, find a way to get out of covenant. Like, once a covenant's made, it's made. It's done. And ultimately, what we would see is there would be severe consequences if you were to try to break it. Now, the structure, why, I t- why it's important that we point out the structure is, again, um, helpful for us as Christians, I would say. Um, not necessarily, well, I mean, it's helpful to understand the book of Deuteronomy as well. But I would say, even from another standpoint, it's helpful. Here's why. Moses wrote this book. So if you want to jot that down in your Deuteronomy background, you're more than welcome to do that. Moses wrote this book. He's the author. But over the last 200 years, people have tried to fight against that idea that Moses wrote this book. They've tried to say that this is a conglomeration of different authors at different times um, that ultimately have basically created it over several hundred years in a reaction or a response to the times that they were in, or maybe even just oral history that they had, um, that had been delivered and accepted by the community that they kind of put together in a book. Here's why this doesn't quite work, as I think is great evidence that it's not true. First off, this, this specific covenant reflects covenants that were made in the 1300 to 1200 B.C. area. Okay, by Hittite nations at that time. So it is very similar to covenants that were made by Hittite, by Hittite nations at that time. Okay, And it was made during the 1300, 1200 BC, exactly when Moses would have been alive. So this is a really helpful evidence for us. We have, I mean, this is one of many evidences of historical archaeological evidence that help confirm not only when this was written, 
who probably would have written it, but also it's, it's consistency over millennia, right? This has been preserved from the moment it was written to ultimately um, all the way up until today. Now, I will say this because I think it's, it's helpful, especially as you read the books, you will notice, especially at times um, near the end, where there is another writer present, um, and it's probably Joshua, because Moses would die, and it even talks about, like, Moses died and this happened. And it's like, well, he couldn't be writing it if he died, right? So Joshua added these, these kind of transitional periods um, into what would ultimately be the trajectory of, of where the Israelites would go. You guys have any questions about that? You guys have any questions in general? I've been talking, so. I have answered them all. Great. All right, well, good. Um, so anyways, these are really important parts. But covenants were all over the place. And the fact that this one reflects those at that specific time period, it's good, helpful evidence for us that it, that's when it was probably written. So the other thing, though, is that there are many covenants in the Bible. Like, this isn't the only one. There are several covenants. Do um, you guys any, know any of them off the top of your head? What's that? The Noahic Covenant. Yes, the Noahic Covenant. So that happens in Genesis 9. Right? So I want to, I want you guys to check that out. So Genesis 9, if you remember, Noah, you know, uh, basically the whole world had descended into chaos and corruption. And people's hearts were evil. They just had been warped by sin um, in so many ways. And so God decided to wipe the earth clean of, from sin. And this is what he says when he, after he has chosen Noah and his family to get on the ark. And how long does it rain for? You guys remember? 40 days and 40 nights. You see the four shadows. They're everywhere. They're, they're all connected. Uh, numbers, events, characters. There's always a fulfillment in Christ. But this is what God says to Noah after the flood um, has receded and the waters go down. He says in verse 8, in chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. This is with every single person, every single part of nature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, and with all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you. Every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he continues on in verse 14. Whatever I bring, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Okay, so this is a major covenant that God makes. And what's it all about? He says, I'm going to restrain my wrath. I'm not going to destroy the earth in this way again. You don't have to worry about all of life ending in a moment because of your sin. Instead, I will restrain it. And the sign of this covenant is a rainbow. Now, here's what's fascinating about this, though. He says that whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant. Isn't that interesting? Here's why I think he does this. I think that when the rainbow appears, it's not just that we will remember that God made a promise. It's that when we see a rainbow, we will forever remember that God has never forgotten. That God is, has, is always be use, using nature and creation itself to testify to the promise and the fulfillment of everything he said thus far. Fascinating. Okay, the other covenant is in Genesis 15. 
And I'm not going to get too deeply into this covenant because um, next week I'm going to get more, like a lot more heavier into it um, because I think this one is the most important covenant. Uh, this is the one that scripture references more than any of the others, and especially Galatians. Uh, if you read through Galatians, you'll see all the tie-in from there. Uh, but this is the covenant with Abraham, right? Abraham has a covenant, and it says the word of the Lord came to him because ultimately Abraham was freaking out. Like God had made all these promises to him about blessings and you know offspring, and he's like, I don't have any offspring. Like all of my stuff's going to go to Eleazar, my servant, and I don't know, like. All your promises, what's going to happen? And this is what uh, God says. It says, then the word of the Lord came to him. And it said this, this man will not be your heir. And this is in verse 4, I should say. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And this is where the covenant ceremony takes place. The covenant ceremony would take place, and we would see it clearly when the, when the animals were split, darkness falls, and God walks through the pieces, and he makes a covenant. He said, how, how do I know this is going to happen? I'll make a covenant with you. You will be absolutely sure that I will, um, I will fulfill my promises. I will do this, okay? And the sign of this covenant uh, becomes circumcision. Circumcision, which is a... It's a, you know, interesting sign, <laughs> but a helpful one because here's the deal. Every single time there was intimacy, they would be reminded by seeing it, but they would also be reminded by the intimacy, by reproduction, that they were actually fulfilling the covenant. Every single time those union of lives came together, they were actually like expressing the fulfillment of the covenant. Okay. So. Interesting. Okay, so the other covenant that's really important, these are just the major ones, just lots of them. These are the major ones, is in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Wow, I just, I didn't even have a bookmark. I just opened my Bible and I flipped right to it. What are the odds? Wow. Okay, 2 Samuel 7. So in this, in this, David has just had these amazing military victories. He has gotten the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the presence of God, and he's trying to get it back to Jerusalem because it's clear that the blessing of God is on David. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart, and God is blessing him with victory, um, with, with health, with wisdom, everything he needs to be a good king. Okay, and obviously they're transporting the ark back. They're doing it the wrong way. You know, if you guys remember that story. And then they finally get the ark to Jerusalem and David dances. You guys remember that? He's dancing all over the place and his wife sees him and she despises him because he says that that he's dancing in an undignified way, like he's humiliating himself. And he said, I will become even more undignified than this before my God. I will humiliate myself even more that every person may know this great and glorious king and what he's done for this people of Israel and for me to be able to lead this, this people. And here is what, what happens is David comes to a point in the story where he's like, I have this amazing palace to dwell in. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's made with this amazing timber and gold and marble. I mean, all these different materials that basically make it fabulous and amazing, right? 
But he's like, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, it has no place to dwell. It has no place to, to have a, a resting place. And God, and so, well, I should say, David initially says, I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to build God a house. And he asked Nathan, the prophet, Nathan at first is like, yeah, do it. Like, I think you should. But then God speaks. And he said, David, man, I see your heart. I see that you are a man after me. I love you for wanting to do this for me, but you, you won't be doing that. You won't be. I've never had a place to dwell in thus far so that I could lead you to where I needed you guys to go. And you don't need to build me a house. However, this is what he says. The Lord declares to you, he says this in, in verse 11, um, 11 B with how this is broken up. He said, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So he says, you won't build me a house. I'm going to build you one. And what does he mean by that? He's saying, from now on, your lineage, your genealogy, it will always have a king on the throne. And eventually that king will be the Messiah. And he says in verse 13, he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now it has there underneath when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I, as I took it away from Saul. So at one level, this covenant is saying, now we know Solomon is going to build the temple. At one level, this covenant is saying Solomon's going to build a house for the resting place of God in terms of like the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that would go into that. And we also see that there are conditions like when he does wrong, I'm going to punish him, right? But it says, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. And so as generations would carry on, despite the fact that these kings would do bad things, and they would, we would see that pretty clearly through um, Kings and Chronicles, it would ultimately end in Jesus. Jesus would be the fulfillment of the king. And Jesus would build a new house, wouldn't he? You see, sometimes I think when we see a story like this and David's like, man, I want to build a house for God. Like, what a heart after God that he would want to create that for God, you know? And we read stuff like that. We're like, man, I want to have a passion like that. But the truth is, like, God is actually inviting us to do this very thing. Like, Jesus has created a house because every single person becomes a dwelling place for the presence of God. And the way that we build a house today is not by sticks and stones. It's by renovating the wickedness out of our hearts, the sin, corruptedness, getting it away and making a house beautiful for God. But more than that, it's extending it to every person who hasn't received the presence of God themselves. We can build a house for God in an amazing way because Jesus has already started the foundation. He's the cornerstone of the whole thing. And that house can just get bigger and better and enjoyable as more and more people experience the presence of God. And he says this, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? I mean, he gets it. He gets it. Okay, the last major covenant is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. Oh, and I didn't say this. We don't know of a sign for the Davidic covenant. It doesn't ever tell us that there's a sign for it. So we're not sure exactly what that sign was or if there was one. There usually is one for a covenant, but it doesn't tell us what it is. The, the Mosaic covenant is what we see throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the forming of the Mosaic Covenant, and it's also the history of it as it would ultimately conclude in, the Deut- in Deuteronomy. Not conclude in the way that it's over, but like finish up its final installment, I guess you could say. So Deuteronomy is the end of this explanation of the Mosaic Covenant. And the sign for the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Which is why, in many ways, God is so concerned with people keeping the Sabbath. It's not just because um, it's needed for our rhythm of life, but also because it is the very sign by which it shows them as a part of the people of God. Therefore, to not keep the covenant is essentially saying, I will not be a part of this people. Does that make sense? So it's the, it's the sign for the Mosaic Covenant. Now, here's the deal. Over all of the first five books of the Bible, um, a commentator said this, and I think it really, it really is precise, I think, with the theme. This is the whole point of the first five books of the Bible, and really, I would say, the covenants in general, is that the main theme is Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, opening up a way, opening up a way for humanity to dwell in the presence of God. That's the whole point. It's the main theme. Sin has separated us. God is pursuing us. And every covenant, every book in this law is God trying to open up a way for humanity to dwell in his presence again. How do we start to see these glimpses of the Garden of Eden once more? despite the fact that we've had to be removed from it. Now, some have taken all of these covenants and put them into a theological scheme. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. This isn't a class on covenant theology, uh, but I just want you to know what a covenant is because the covenants are so prevalent throughout Scripture and so important to the meta-narrative, to the story as a whole, okay? And what I really want you to see, too, is that a covenant, like, it has these promises that are made. It has... The, the bond between the parties, the conditions and stuff, but a covenant does not create the relationship. A covenant does not make a relationship. It guards it. It guards it. Like my wife and I, our, the covenant that we made through marriage didn't start our relationship, right? The relationship was already there. What a covenant does is it puts boundaries around it. And most of these covenants, there are conditions. Like there are things that you have to do to help keep these boundaries up. And there are things that can be broken and there are consequences. And in most covenants, these consequences were severe. And it's not because these people were just like brutal, but because this relationship was that serious. Like it had that much weight with it. It can't just be as good as somebody's word. Like there had to be a consequence for actually breaking the parts and the conditions of this covenant. And so what most parties would do is they'd have a ceremony, a ceremony very similar to what we see in Genesis between God and Abraham. What happens? They take these animals, they split them into, which is, I mean, nasty, grotesque, bloody. Then they would separate them, create an aisle, and then both parties would walk down the aisle of these, of these ripped apart animals. And in doing so, what they were saying is, I'm making these promises to you. If I don't uphold them, I deserve to be ripped apart, to be killed. Both parties had made promises, and these were the conditions, and they were saying, if I don't uphold my end, I deserve to die. I deserve to die. And this this is the point of why covenants are so meaningful. So let me explain. I have a friend. um, He was telling me a story um, of his when he was a little boy, and he was poor. 
And um, he grew up, I think it was in Peru, and he grew up and he, um, like his father was just not a nice guy. Like his dad just wasn't a nice guy. And regardless of that, I mean, he loved him. Like he was a little boy and regardless of, you know, the way that his dad may have treated him, he just wanted his love and he wanted, he still was an influence in his life. And he was telling me that one time, he will never forget, his dad was like, hey, I'm going to pick you up after school at this spot. I just need you to come to this spot. And after school, I'm going to come get you, and we're going to do all these things. I'm like, I'm going to take you here. I'm going to take you there. I'm gonna, we're going to do all these things. And so obviously, like, he was just so excited about this. Like, his dad had never done something like this before. And so after school, he goes to the spot, and he waits for his dad, and his dad never comes. And what he told me was actually that this was the last time he ever saw his dad because his dad walked out on their family. He never saw him again. Now, this story has a good ending, um, but you have to come to Advent to hear it. So that's my small commercial. That's come, but I mean, an amazing story of God's intervention in his life in a way that brought him hope. But here's the deal. All of us, at some level or another, come to this place, this insecurity, where we start to question, does God really love me? Will God really keep his promises? Will he really do what he says he's going to do? Because I'm worrying, I'm stressing, I'm distracted, I'm anxious. And we just begin to question, can God really do what he says he's going to do? And this is what a covenant does. It gives you the assurance that God will never, ever do that to you. Ever. This is what a covenant does. It doesn't establish a relationship. It guards it. And what God has said is that I'm going to create, the, after the relationship is created, he says, I am going to keep my promises and you will see that if I don't, I deserve to be put to death. Right? It was God who walked through the pieces with Abraham and yet Abraham did not. He's saying, if I don't keep up my end of this bargain, I deserve to die. You see, God is, is so committed to showing you that he will always be there, that he will always keep his promises within these covenants. He's a promise keeper at all costs, which is why Hebrews 6 verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You know what it's saying? It's saying God is such a promise keeper. He will never break his promises. And we can know that. One, because God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And because of that, the second thing is that that gives you an unshakable hope. It will never be disrupted. It is an anchor buried so deeply into the sand that it will never ever be able to be lifted up. God's promises are sure and forever and he is good. And the covenant shows us at just what cost God would show how much he will keep those promises to you. But it also shows us the cost of what would happen when we wouldn't keep our promises to him. And that cost, those burdens, those curses would be lifted on Christ himself. He would become a curse for us. 
inheriting all of the wrath, all of the curses of these covenant promises that we failed to fulfill. And yet, even though God was faithful, he continues to allow that faithfulness to overrun our unfaithfulness. This is how good God is. And so for us in this room, what covenants help us know and enjoy is that you are never too far gone. Like you have never stepped over the line so much that God's faithfulness can't cover you. That's what a covenant does. It gives us assurance. And Deuteronomy is the formal document. It's this formal document of a covenant that's spelling all of these things out. I'm going to jump into the preamble of this covenant quickly. Um, We have just about 10 minutes left. You know what? No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to do it next week because we only have 10 minutes left, and I want to make sure if you guys have questions, I can do that. So do you have any questions? And now you have to ask at least one question because I've already concluded it. So do you have any questions about this section as a whole? Um, Any questions about Deuteronomy or anything like that? The name of the covenant in Genesis 15? The Abrahamic covenant. Yes, Abrahamic. They're all after the names of the people, you know, with an ick at the end, you know? So, Noah, ick. Abraham, ick. So, is, um, this may be a stupid question, but I'm going to... So, the covenant that, G- that God made with Jesus, is that part of the Mosaic covenant? Because it's, it's the last covenant? That's not a stupid question at all. Um, so, his question was... Is the covenant that was made with Jesus part of the Mosaic covenant, right? Is that, so we're going to start to answer that question next week. Um, here's a question I get all the time, and this is all a big part of it. Um, uh, in fact, the kings asked me this when we were studying Galatians. Is the nation of Israel, like how do we understand the nation of Israel? How do we understand the laws that they were given? Are the, are, is the demands of the Mosaic Covenant still relevant, or relevant and prevalent to us today? Like, do we still need to be not eating pork and not boiling a mother's goat in its milk, you know, or whatever, you know? So those types of things, like how do those things carry over into our understanding of the new covenant? We're going to get into that. I'm going to answer those questions next week because I've been asked so many times and they are so, like, it is a, it's actually one of the most complicated theological questions uh, that, that people deal with um, because there's disagreement in terms of how that actually plays itself out. So I'm going to go pretty deeply into it next week because I've never gone, like, the question always comes up and I answer it, but I never, like, get to show my explanation of how I got there. Next week, that's what I'm going to do. We're going to get into some, some good theology there, um, but hopefully that will help answer some of those questions um, and if it's, if, if, and here's the deal, here's what I'll always say is there's going to be people who disagree with me in terms of like where I land on different stuff. And that's absolutely okay. Um, I'm going to show you how I got to my understanding. And that isn't to say, get on the train with me or, you know, you're not getting on at all. That is just simply to say, here's my understanding of what scripture says. But at the end of the day, so long as we believe Jesus is our Lord and Savior and we're becoming more like him every single day, that is what absolutely matters. And so I think that, you know, what I'm going to explain makes the best case, um, makes the most sense of the biblical narrative and stories. But it doesn't mean that I am um, absolutely right and everyone's absolutely wrong. Uh, There's definitely room for interpretation on those issues. But a great question and one we'll address next week. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Comments are always allowed. I, I have a small comment. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me the consistency of God's role versus our role in the, in the covenant making. And, and that is that we never asked for a covenant. And the, the, the terms of the covenant are always pretty much exclusively favorable toward us. Like God's mm. saying, I'm going to do these things for you. And like, you have to follow these rules, but like, there's nothing in it for God, really. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting because we didn't even ask for that. He just did it and promised it to us on pain of death. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a great comment. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it shows us his love, you know, like that he would do all of these things and go the extra mile simply to enjoy, to be able to enjoy a relationship with us, you know. And I think, you know, even going back to that comment, like I really do believe that all of Scripture, but especially the first five books, like when you see creation being made and God walking in the garden with his people, and then all of that just being torn down from a moment of weakness, of appetite. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. And I think what we see is how, like what you see throughout scripture in general is the, how sin just completely distorts and unravels everything. But that's what God does. Like he's pursuing us. And every part of his pursuit is based off of helping us dwell in his presence again. And I think that's such a, a helpful, yeah, I mean, devotional, you know, way to just really enjoy the amazing love of God. You know, I mean, it really is. So, yeah, it's true. Any other, anybody else? Yeah. So Deuteronomy declares a lot of God's attributes. And um, just as you've studied it, what have you gained and learned? And about Deuteronomy? Yeah, just yeah, in terms of reading about Deuteronomy, and you guys may know this already. If How many of you guys, like, teach? Teach anything? So you probably know this. When you teach something, you, like, dive into it. And you probably get more out of it than, like, even when you teach you, the other people, you know, because you're just spending so much time in it, and you become so aware of even so much more. So her question was, what have I gained from studying Deuteronomy and, like, looking at the attributes of God and all these different things? Um, I, I would almost echo what we've already said, which, to me, the amazing thing about God throughout Deuteronomy is his his love in a way that he's trying to create a family. Like he's trying to, we're going to look at this too. Um, I think can't look, remember what it is on the class structure side of things. Um, the goodness of God, the grace of God. Um, those, those sections in particular are really, really focused on like looking at how amazing God is and how we can start to embed those things in our everyday life. How we can teach our kids those things. Like how we're actually we're, like those things should be, you know, tied on our heads and, you know, like those, like to me, like God is so, is so gracious in his a willing, willingness to pursue us and open up these avenues to enjoy him. And um, here's what I'll say too. I've heard this illustration before. It's by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. And um, I think reading Deuteronomy and c- continuing to see it in light of Christ, this is what I'll say. He, he talks about this, um, a father who brings a little boy into a, a toy store. 
And he brings them into the toy store and he just starts showing them like everything in this place. Like, and the kid's face is just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, he's going around, he's looking at all of these gigantic, you know, like toys of like cars and things you can drive in, but also like helicopters you can fly around and like, you know, all these just amazing things. He goes around the whole store and then his dad brings him back to the, to the entrance and he says, just look at it all, look at it all. And his, you know, son's got this big smile on his face. And he, and he just looks at him and he says, you'll have none of it. And he said, it's not a true story, but like his idea, like that's how we perceive God sometimes. Like we, like so many people think God's bringing us into the world and there's all these pleasures out there. And he says, no, you can't have that. And what Deuteronomy is saying is, no, God brings us in. He says, I want to give you all of this, but in the, in the way that you most need it and will most enjoy it. And if you try to guzzle down, you know, a hundred, Skittles all at once, that's not going to be good for you. Like, that's not going to be good for you. And that's what Deuteronomy says. It's like, it's basing itself all on the love of God. And then all of the civil and the judicial and these, these ceremonial laws are made to help us, like, be protected from the very things that we, that will destroy us. Like the poisons that we so easily consume because we think that the instant moments of pleasure are going to satisfy us for eternity and then they don't. And so God over and over again says, I want to give you the pleasures that you're seeking, but in the right ways. Like you want sex, but it's best in marriage. You know, you want relationships, but it's best in when it's under the Lordship of Christ. And it's not, and it's not tearing one another down or gossiping or all these things. You know, you want to be able to have, you know, what being well off or not well off, but like just not struggling, right? Being able to have a meal on your table and do all these nice things. Well, there's debt that like you need to make sure you're, you're working with in a certain way. Like that's what Deuteronomy is addressing. It's like addressing all these practical things that in reality we take for granted most of the time because we're like, but I want it, <laughs> you know, and I want it now and I want it in this way. And so I think that, um, in general, God is far more gracious and patience than what we, what we think and far more faithful and, um, sure than what we often believe. And I think that's why we get into places where we have anxiety or stress or worry because we're being bombarded by so many things. And God keeps saying, but just come sit with me and you'll, you'll find that those things aren't as worrisome as you might have thought, you know. So, okay, it is 1023. So I'm going to pray for you and, um, and then I'll let you guys go. Father God, you are holy and good and true, and we just pray that you continue to guide our lives. We pray that um, each week that we gather to, together in this place, uh, it would just become a little microcosm of your church. God, as we share life together, um, as we share what we're learning, and Father, ultimately as we sit in your presence. Um, and God, we pray that it would be actively at work. We are in need of your grace, and we are in need of reminders of, of who it is we trust in, God. And so, Father, we just pray that you would continue to make that evident in our lives. God, I pray for this, this day, whether those, for people who have gone to church already, that it continues to, to move out into their everyday life. It wouldn't just become compartmentalized or secluded to a moment on a Sunday. And, and for those of us who have yet to worship God, I pray that it would be an outpouring of praise, that we would abandon ourselves and we would become like David, undignified in our worship of you. Um, and in a way, God, that wants to build a home that not just starts in our hearts, but extends to those uh, who don't have you in theirs. And God, I pray that in all things, you are King, you are Lord, you are Savior, and we are your servants uh, because you are kind. 
And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.